0: lot Talk Radio.
1: Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. It is Sunday, May the 3rd. Oh my god, we're still in quarantine. Holy crap. I cannot believe it. I I I left the house today. Uh we had a little uh um chore. We had a little errand we needed to run. Um And I was so excited to get out of the house. It's a beautiful day in Florida. It's one of those days where the the sky is just striking blue and the air is soft and it's not hot yet. It was absolutely gorgeous. And we were driving a rat out to the country to let him loose. Her, I think. We've decided it's a she. Uh, Poor little girl. She uh, took up residence on our back porch. And uh, aside from not wanting a rat living on our back porch, we also didn't want our dogs to, um, you know, find the live squeaky toy. Uh, So that was my day. Um, We've got a great show for you tonight that does not involve driving Rodentia around. We have Rick Spuzak, reporting from the road. He's got a great interview with professor, uh, Florida International University professor, Jerry Brown on the uh, unexpected uh, psychedelic iconography in Christian art. And I can't wait for that interview. We'll be playing that at the top of the hour at eight o'clock. We also have Janine Moloff with a, Really cool story about a COVID treatment that comes out of Cuba and is not being in consider not being considered or is not under consideration in the United States because Cuba, um, you know, uh, Bernie was pilloried on 60 Minutes and thereafter for you know just mentioning that. Cuba was good at, I think it was education, and he might have actually mentioned medicine to you. Uh, but uh, you know, that's verboten. You know, Cuba can't do anything, right? We're not allowed to say that. But they have uh treatment. It looks like a prophylactic treatment to me, but we'll learn more about it from Janine Malas. Uh, that is Alpha 2B recombinant recombinant interferon. Uh, so we'll hear about that at 8.30 when Janine Maloff is on um, and I thought I would start off this show I've got a couple of topics I'm going to talk about uh, but I thought I would start off with just some general observations some lockdown a little bit of lockdown this and that um, because I've had nothing to do but uh, think about what's going on with this lockdown you know I, I we've talked on the show a lot in the past about uh chronic illness I have a chronic illness and so I have good days and bad days and good weeks and bad weeks and uh it's it's always been that way I've I've had this for since I was a teenager um and when you're When you're not feeling awful, and in my case, what feeling awful usually is, is feeling like you have a fever and having the flu. Um, When you're not feeling awful and your head is clear, you want to get as much done as you possibly can. And you want to take in as much as you possibly can because you know in a couple of weeks, you're going to be uh, feeling like you got a fever and the flu again. Uh, So I've taken a lot of advantage of this in the last few days, as I've uh, come out of my last flare, uh, And I've noticed, I've noticed quite a few things. First of all, we have a neighbor two doors down who plays the accordion. Swear to God, it's the coolest thing. We can sit on our back porch now, sans rodentia. We can sit on our back porch, and every now and then we hear practicing accordion and they're actually really good um then they'll turn on like the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack which you know whatever that's cool too but I prefer the accordion I might go down there and uh just mention that uh another thing I've mentioned (laughs) I've noticed here lockdown observations is uh it used to be sitting out on the porch in normal times we live uh, pretty close to Orlando International Airport. Like, uh, if you need to catch a plane and leave from our house, uh, you don't you don't have to really plan ahead. You can just like zip right over there. So, being that close to OAI is the downside of that. Is we get a lot of air traffic over our house from time to time. Now, by by uh, most metropolitan areas make airports change their flight patterns so that you're not always uh, flying over one neighborhood or another. I don't know if that's the case here. It was the case in Nashville. Um, I haven't heard a plane in a dog's age. Well, that's hyperbole. I haven't heard a plane in a month and a half, at least. And it's starting to get a little eerie. Um, what else do we got? What else? What else is there? Uh, I've had a lot to get into with regard to what's been going on this week. Uh, We've got the death of the Me Too movement. I hope I'm not exaggerating that. I really hope that, uh, Me too is is something and believing women is something that we can continue to do. Uh, But I'm starting to question whether that's a possibility. So uh, we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about, um, I wanna talk about setting boundaries. I think it's important to set boundaries in politics. And I realized this week that we might be ignoring a very obvious analogy and a very obvious way to be talking about our um, relationship, our political relationship. So I'm going to be getting into that, and uh, uh, I think that we're all suffering from narcissistic abuse, but we'll 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 get into that in a bit. Uh, this week, George Bush, George W. Bush. Uh, his reputation was completely rehabilitated. George W. Bush, big good guy now. We're all supposed to give him due credit and embrace him and blah blah blah. Um, that's I'm not doing that. Sorry. A million Iraqis died uh, in a in a, a war that had absolutely nothing to do with them, just to take their oil and. We're still there and we're still in Afghanistan and uh you're never going to convince me that George W. Bush is a good guy. It's not gonna happen. And for those people out there right now who are quote unquote liberals who are doing that, just stop. You're 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 not doing that's that's not helping. That's not doing anybody any good. Uh I don't know why anybody would do that, to tell you the truth. Uh, we also had this week, we we had trending along with the hashtag, I believe Tara Reid. We also had hashtag fire Chris Hayes because, oh my God, MSNBC actually freaking covered the Tara Reid story. So we're going to talk about Tara Reid. Let's talk about Tara Reid. Uh Credit where credit is due, the always amazing Katie Halper was the first person to interview Tara Reid, who was a young staffer. She was a staffer uh, in uh, Biden's Senate office in the early 90s, in 1993. Uh, 93 was after the Anita Hill hearings. Anita Hill hearings happened in 91, I believe. Uh, And, uh, you know young young person probably first real job out in the real world really wanted to get into politics and you know that that was where she was trying to launch her career was as a senate staffer and you know that's a that's a place of privilege you know not everybody gets to be a staffer in a in the office of a senator who is who is Super important You know uh, Joe Biden Was chair of the judiciary committee That's how come he could uh, Grill Anita Hill the way he did So uh, So this is Somebody who had a little bit of privilege going in Same way by the way That Monica Lewinsky had A little bit of privilege In order to be an intern in the White House right Uh, in, In order to have that kind of Access to folks you are going to need a little bit of uh, a little bit of help you got to go to the right school you got to you know the right people your parents you got to have the connections you know not everybody's just going to step into one of those jobs um, but but when you're a young staffer in an office in a in a Senate office or in the House or you know anywhere in um, on Capitol Hill in the government you don't wield power. You might have enjoyed a little privilege and you might have enjoyed a little power to get to that position, but as a super young person in their first job, I mean, you don't really know that much about how the world, world works. You're trying to get that experience. You don't really have that much power. Otherwise, you wouldn't be you know, making copies for people. Uh, Tara Reed, like Monica Lewinsky, did not have personal power. To read, as she has grown up, uh, doesn't have the kind of power and privilege that someone like uh, Dr. Blasey Ford has. Dr. Blasey Ford uh, has the Prefix of doctor before her name, you know, and she was introduced in the, in the context of, you know, bringing up a rape allegation uh, during a Supreme Court nomination hearing, you know, so, 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 you know, her station was then her station in life, her privilege, her, her um, status was then brought to bear within the context of that Senate uh, uh, nomination, you know, where they're, where they're trying to decide whether they were going to approve Kavanaugh or not. Um, Tara Reid does not have doctor before her name. Tara Reid does not have high powered lawyers working with her. She doesn't have, she doesn't have any of that stuff that um, Dr. Blasey Ford had because what happened to her in 1993 really kind of screwed things up for. Her. Uh, the way I understand it, Tara Reid really looked up to Joe Biden, and I can understand that because there was a pl- point when I was young in the 90s where I had political figures that I looked up to, and they could have done no wrong. Looking at you, Al Gore. Um, growing up. Part of growing up is figuring out how wrong that sort of thing is. <laughs> Part of growing up is realizing how people are flawed and uh you know, holding them up as as icons isn't exactly um that's not always gonna work. People are going to um disappoint. They're just going to disappoint you. Uh and in the case of Terry Reid, Joe Biden really disappointed her. Uh, the story is that he cornered her. Uh, he called the office and had her bring his gym bag to him and meet him somewhere where uh, where she could hand it off. And apparently there was nobody around and allegedly he pushed her up against the wall or got her up against the wall and uh, Put his hands up her clothes, and uh, and and penetrated her with his finger. Okay, now this is the kind of thing that (laughs) you see like frat boys uh, joking about. You know, like, oh, you got to go finger bang so and so, you know, like, 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 you know, if, if you haven't gotten so many people like drunk and finger bang them, then, you know, what are you even doing with your college education? Like, that is totally a thing, you know, and, and, you know, God bless the people who are unaware that that is a thing. I am so glad that your lives have, have gone on a trajectory where you're not aware of that sort of uh, repulsive Crap that goes on, but that's this. What was on? That's that's the way some men behave. Now all of this is alleged, and we don't have um, forensics that can prove or disprove whether or not you know exactly what she said happened exactly at that moment. But what we do have is. We have her narrative, and we used to have this thing called the Me Too movement where women were supposed to be uh, afforded uh, an amount of uh, room in order to make their allegations, in order to um, be believed uh, but now what we're finding is that that belief, you know, whether or not you're going to believe women has more to do with, you know, you know, like, eh, we believe it if she were, if she had a little bit more, you know, doctor before her name, you know, if she was like a PhD, or if she was a, a powerful CEO, or if she was somebody in, in a, a, in a class that afforded her some, um, some, some power, then she would be more believable. I mean, guys, what's really going on here is, is a, um, is a class distinction. Uh, Tara Reid is not in the class that uh, Dr. Blasey Ford is. And that's, that's what we're being told. Um, And it's really a shame, you know, uh Kevin Drums this week in Mother Jones for about five minutes had a blog post uh, called So comma, so comma, Terra read ellipsis, dot dot dot. Um and uh in this he says being a progressive is not a suicide pack pact. We can agree to always take accusations of sexual assault seriously without feeling that we have to automatically believe every one of them. Um, In this case, the evidence is so massively on Biden's side that I see little reason to believe Reed's current story unless new and damning evidence presents itself. All right. The evidence is so massively on Biden's side. Let me just suggest that what is on Biden's side isn't so much evidence as it is class, as it is power, as it is station. Uh, Joe Biden was the vice president. He was a senator, powerful senator, and now he's running for president. You know that is already we've got massively unequal scales here. Okay, yeah. That's part of the evidence that, that Kevin Drum is, is talking about, because if you look at what Tara Reid uh, brings to the table, she actually told multiple people at the time. Her mother actually called uh, the Larry King show and, and mentioned this back in 93. She made a complaint to the uh, personnel office in the Senate, which should be in uh, Joe Biden's Senate papers that are now at the University of Delaware and he won't uh, allow people to do a search on Tara Reed in order to find that material. However, we do know that campaign operatives have gone to the University of Delaware uh, to comb through those records. We know not for what. All right, But I have a feeling I know what it is. And you do too. So you know, this is just really sad. This is just really a, a, a sad day, not just for Me Too, but it's a sad day for progressives and the left and liberals and the Democratic Party or the Democratic brand. Let's just call it the Democratic brand. Because the Democratic brand that I grew up with was that Democrats could claim the moral high ground completely authentically. And that is how we got people elected. That is how we got things done is that we made sure that we were on the right side of the issues, um, or at least we were really good at selling that to the public. And, you know, now the mask is just coming, coming off. With Joe Biden, we are seeding the moral high ground on sexism on misogyny on, 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 on me too stuff. Okay. You know, we can't go up against Trump with Biden as our nominee. We can't go up against Trump and say, Oh, you're terrible to women, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's off the table. No longer can we do that. Another thing we can't do with Joe Biden is we can't claim the moral high ground on racism because Joe Biden also Despite how many, you know, older African American voters in South Carolina like him, you know, he was he was against busing and he worked with some, you know, awful old uh, Jim Crow types to make sure that his rich white constituency in Delaware was not going to be bothered with with busing okay he also authored and championed the uh crime bill that kicked off mass incarceration of people of color which i think is actually the worst you know the the, the worst thing there uh in terms of racism we also see the moral high ground on corruption you know we just went through this whole impeachment thing with uh, with Trump and they had to kind of switch gears from the RussiGate thing to the Ukraine thing and it turns out that Joe Biden's son Hunter was actually trading on his dad's uh, reputation and his connection in order to, to do natural gas deals in Ukraine and that situation was repeated with uh, deals in China. So corruption is off the table. I and mean, li- with Joe Biden, we have lost the moral high ground on, you know, all of these issues that are supposed to be definitive of the Democratic Party. They're supposed to be central to our brand, core, core, that we can claim the moral high ground. Can't do that with Joe Biden. Just can't. Um, can't claim the moral high ground with regard to policy, you know? And, you know, speaking of, uh, of me too, and speaking of issues relating to to women, one of the things that I found really interesting today was um, this is a, a piece that is in the New York Times, came out on May the 2nd. Oh, I think that's yesterday. Yeah, that's yesterday, Saturday. Uh, Jessica Bennett and... Lisa Lair and they have a little quote in here from Gloria Steinem who says women know the polar difference between Biden and Trump who brags about assaulting women in his private life and whose public policies endanger women's health and safety. This is Gloria Steinem. This is the same Gloria Steinem by the way, who said that, uh, women who supported Bernie Sanders were just there for the boys, okay? I mean, just throwing that out there, just letting you know. But, uh, but so with regard to Biden, with regard to Joe Biden, with regard to Tara and with regard to issues of sexual assault, she says that we know the difference. The, 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 uh, Trump brags publicly about assaulting women, and I guess what's not being said here is that Biden keeps it quiet? Like, is that the difference? And uh, she's asserting that you know that 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 Trump's policies would endanger women's health and safety. No doubt, absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but you know, Joe Biden is not known for supporting uh, a, a woman's right to choose either. Um, here's a Here's a real interesting clip. I love this clip. Not that one. Not that one. Hold on. Tell me about abortion.
2: Where, where do you stand, and how will you face that issue? Um, uh, it's going to be very difficult. I, I do not view abortion as a uh, um, as a choice of a right. I think it's always a tragedy.
1: Joe Biden, in his own words, he says that he does not view abortion as a choice or a right, and he's also said elsewhere that um, that he doesn't believe a, a, a woman has the sole right to determine what she does with her body. And he, I mean, I, clearly, that extended to uh, Tara Reid. Uh, so we're seeding the high ground on misogyny, seeding the high ground on racism, seeding the high ground on corruption, and seeding the high ground on policy here with regard to women's issues, you know, with regard to pol- uh, abortion, uh, Joe Biden's also famously tried to reduce Social Security. In other words, raise the uh, age of eligibility and institute a uh, chained CPI, which is which lowers the amount. It it effectively cut Social Security for our seniors. Um, with regard to war, he was one of the main people who went after the Patriot Act. One of the main people who went after the Iraq War uh, was a big champion of all these things. You know, when what we're really talking about here is, you know, the lesser of two neoliberals. I mean, is that really what we're talking about here? We're supposed to vote for the lesser of two evils. And we're supposed to be like, oh, Joe Biden's the lesser of two evils. So that is a clear ethical, that is a bright line in the sand. Clear clearly, the ethical choice is to vote for Joe Biden. However, you know. He doesn't support, you know, we, we, we stand to lose as much with Joe Biden, and he'll do it with a smile on his face with his chiclet teeth. Uh, we stand to lose as much with him as we would with Trump. Now, Trump's going to be nastier about it, and he's going to be stupider about it, which, you know what, I would argue actually gives us more of a chance to stop some shit. Okay, But, you know, whatever. If Joe Biden wins, Joe Biden wins. We deal with it. However, someone pointed out to me this week that Joe Biden does not have one thousand nine hundred and ninety one delegates yet, which is the amount that you need to win the nomination. Isn't that interesting? Uh, And New York just canceled the primary. So, you know, there aren't going to be any delegates coming from New York. We could very easily go in, go into the convention with no candidate having reached that 1,991 delegates, which means automatically that everything would go to the superdelegates. And superdelegates are going to choose the worst neoliberal, you know, Uh, warm body that they possibly can. It could be Joe Biden, but it also is not written in stone that it would be Joe Biden. It could be somebody else. I've heard Pete Buttigieg's name uh, mentioned far too often recently for my comfort. You You don't see people charting out Elizabeth Warren like, uh, oh, maybe we should rehabilitate her uh, brand. No, there, I, I've seen people out there trying to rehabilitate uh, Pete Buttigieg's brand. I haven't seen people out there trying to rehabilitate Kamala Harris, but I have seen people out there trying to rehabilitate Pete Buttigieg. It's just interesting. Just something to keep your eye on. Now, no matter what, once we get to the convention, things are going to be crazy. Expect things to go sideways. Uh, it's, it, it's not going to be easy. And who knows? We might we might not even have a convention if the uh lockdown continues. we might have to do a convention by by zoom meeting, and you know that's gonna be interesting so uh so things aren't quite written in stone yet uh there's a lot yet to happen and let me just let me just leave you with this and uh we'll we'll uh We'll move on to my next topic. Joe Biden's not doing well, and everybody recognizes this. He's cognitively in decline. Uh, you know, it's it's uncouth to say that he's suffering from dementia, but, you know, as I was telling somebody this week, uh, I've been through dementia situations with my father, with my ex father in law. And uh, also with uh, uh, my husband's grandmother and a very good friend in college. His grandmother was suffering from dementia. Dementia has been around me for all throughout my adult life. I recognize it when I see it. And I, rec- I especially recognize the early warning signs. And if you have anybody in your family who has suffered from this, it's the warning signs that really stand out in your head, you know, because uh, that's when you're wondering, that's when you're going, oh, my God, is everything okay? And so you're, you're gut checking every other minute, you're gut checking, you know, is that okay? Is that not okay? What do we do? Um, so I'm familiar with it look for, in addition to the situation that could or that may or may not happen at the convention, look at who is going to be Joe Biden's running mate, because let's be honest, that running mate could become the president at some point. Um, That's going to be an interesting choice. All right, let's take a little bitty break. And I'll be back with a little bit to say on narcissism. Talking to somebody earlier this week about uh, left liberalism, leftism, you know, where we are as a movement. And uh, we were kind of lamenting the situation of the left, unlike left movements in the past, has not done a really good job of recognizing and incorporating cultural uh, touchstones into the movement. We've been completely about electoral politics. We've been about campaigns. We've been about candidates. We've been about platforms and policies, but we haven't been a lot about culture, and we haven't been a lot about psychology, like who we are, sociology, who we are together. And these things are very important. I mean, sociology and psychology are basically what movements are made out of. I mean, that is the stuff of movements. Um, and so I was, I was doing my, my usual reading and research this week, and it occurred to me that we're in a moment this is just me talking. This is just, you know, I'm just noodling, just riffing here. But it occurs to me that we're in a in an era of social narcissism. So stick with me for a second. You know, there's psychology and there's sociology. And psychology is 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 the study of individual emotional states and, and individual and and how that affects the individual sociology deals with the way that people are in groups and how groups affect people and how people affect groups and within sociology there's also social psychology so that's kind of where you meld together the, the two uh, A few years ago, many years ago, 20 years ago, as a matter of fact, uh, I got interested in the topic of narcissism because I was wondering if maybe, perhaps, uh, some of the things that I was experiencing in personal relationships might have to do with the fact that uh, I was surrounded by people who were... um, Who were I I was in the music business. Everybody around me were performers. To imagine that I might be affected by some narcissistic tendencies, looking back on that, I'm sort of like, duh. (laughs) But at the time, there wasn't. People didn't talk about it the way I talk about it now. Like if you go to YouTube and you type in the search bar, um, narcissistic abuse you're going to be inundated you won't you won't ever be able to watch all of the stuff that comes up under narcissistic abuse. There is just a lot out there um, back in the day when I started getting interested in it, there were exactly three books in you know you know serious psychology books that there was three main ones. That were your options to uh, understand the subject matter. And now, when you go to to Amazon and you type in um, narcissism or narcissist abuse, narcissistic abuse, you get 3,000 returns. You know? and you know who knows? Some of those might be you know ten page pamphlets or whatever, but still 3,000 returns. As opposed to, to three. And I'm not saying all 3,000 of those are the serious kinds of uh, examinations that are worth reading. It's just that's just a, uh, an index of how popular this subject matter is right now, this topic is right now. Uh, it's so popular right now that it's kind of a problem. It's kind of a problem that everybody thinks that, you know, when you run into a hitch in your relationship, that one or the other person is a narcissist and that you're experiencing narcissistic abuse. And that's not the case either. Um, But when it is the case, and if that is the problem, you do have a lot of material that you can consume now, which is fantastic. I'm glad people are talking about it. I'm glad that people are thinking about it. But what I wish people would do, maybe a little bit, is reflect on the narcissism that we experience within groups, within, a, within our culture, and specifically within the culture of the left and the culture of liberals on social media. Now, uh, social media is a sociologist. Playground. We love it there. You know, it's not, it's, it's, you know, you never run out of stuff to wonder at on social media because people are acting in groups and they're acting in groups all right there in front of you. And you don't have to go out and find them anymore. You know, you don't have to go and, you know, do ethnography. You don't have to. You know. You can. It, it comes to you via your, uh, via your phone. You know. Via your your laptop. So it's easy. It's much easier now. Um, and it occurs to me that the left, as opposed to liberals, and I I assume that a lot of people listening to me understand this. The left liberals are not the left. Okay, and the left isn't necessarily you know liberalism, okay um, if you think of this as a spectrum, which I don't think is exactly the best way to do it, but if there's a right and there's a left, uh what we call liberalism falls somewhere just to the left of centre just the leftist center. Very interested in playing by the rules and uh, they're pretty happy with the status quo. We just like the status quo to have better manners and uh, be more presentable, so on and so forth. The left is very interested in getting some stuff done. The left is very interested in issues of class and issues of um, whether or not We're going to have a planet in 20 years, and so on and so forth. The left wants to get some stuff done. Uh, Liberal world is pretty happy with the status quo, with a few tweaks here and there. Now, this is not the difference, by the way, between reform and revolution. The left is not calling for a revolution. And I think that that was one of the uh, problems with uh, Bernie's late messaging, you know, back uh, when the – I think the campaign got a little bit threadbare and didn't realize that when the mass media was, was talking about like, Oh, you're calling for a revolution and Bernie was uh, inclined to embrace that. And I don't think that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, like, like Bernie's a reformer, the, Bernie Sanders' movement was a reform movement. It's not a revolutionary movement. Nobody's talking about uh, seizing the means of production. We're not there yet. Um, unfortunately, there are some means of production that I think make a lot of sense to uh, to quote-unquote seize. I think it makes a lot of sense to have... Uh, uh, some sort of nationalization with regard to uh, social media. I think that these are public utilities that would be best treated as public utilities. Uh, financial services for normal people, we shouldn't have to be subjected to the speculation that goes on in commercial banks. We should be able to have our money be safe and be able to borrow money for houses and stuff without, you know taking part in an economy that can go belly up any minute. All right. That's the left. That's liberals. That's, you know, that's laying down some ground rules. So in, 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 in the interest of laying down ground rules and I, I was writing about this a couple of days ago and I realized that what I was talking about was boundaries. Yeah. That's, When people criticize the left for purity politics, the left would be very smart to respond by saying, no, we're setting boundaries. We're setting rules. We're saying that if you cross over this line, then that I find that traumatizing. Uh, I don't want anything to do with that because that injures me that's a boundary. So when you talk about narcissism and narcissistic abuse, one of the first things that you're supposed to do is, you know, as somebody who is like, let's say in therapy, uh, you're supposed to learn about boundaries and you're supposed to learn about how to create them and maintain them. Boundaries are all about setting some rules and communicating those rules effectively and acting on those rules. So like, let's say I have a rule about, um, women's reproductive justice and re- women's reproductive health issues, and uh, in a social in a social political setting, to me it's very important, and it's my boundary that the people who I vote for unequivocally support a woman's uh, right to choose, and do. absolutely nothing to abridge it, you know, no waiting periods, no uh, transvaginal ultrasounds, no age requirements, none of that, all right? That is a clear boundary for me, all right? Um, I think that we need to start using the language of narcissism and narcissistic abuse within the political realm, within it should be considered with regard to political life. Um, and the reason why I think that is because it's useful, it's functional, it can help you. And we're going to talk, we're, we're going to go through some some terms here really quick uh, to uh, to kind of open that can of worms. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense because narcissism and the idea of narcissism lends itself to social relations, lends itself to social situations, to groups of people and the way that we behave together and the way that that culture is created. Uh, Because a narcissist by definition is driven by social relations. So when you've got people like, um, Lindy Lee, or Kurt Eikenwald, or Chris Jackson, or Neera Tanden—you know, uh, going after, going after the left, sending their flying monkeys after us. Um, you are seeing people trading on narcissistic abuse that you have to bow down to them, that you have to kowtow to them, that you have to do what they say, and that there is a group of people, they're flying monkeys, who are going to come after you if you don't toe their line, right? Yeah. You know? They're going to gaslight you, right? We're all familiar with gaslighting. Um, they're going to scapegoat you, you know, like, oh, why didn't we win that election that time? Well, it was because those Those lefties wouldn't vote for our guy because he wasn't good enough, blah, blah, blah. You know, they didn't want to vote for a rapist or something. That's going to be scapegoated. So we're going to get scapegoated if Joe Biden doesn't win in November. Get ready for it. It's going to happen. There's invalidation. If you're in a narcissistic relationship in a... In you know, with with your husband or your wife, what they're going to be doing to you constantly is invalidating you. You know, you're going to get very familiar with, you know, oh, maybe I'm not like smarter, good-looking as I thought I was. You know, and what people like Neera Tandon and the big narcissists in the uh, the elite of the Democratic Party. What they try to do is invalidate the left in terms of, you know, we don't need your vote anyway, right? Yeah. You know, oh, screw you guys. Screw you Biden bros. We don't need you guys anyway. That's a form of invalidation. Um, and, of course, the, the the correct response to that is fine. <laughs> you don't need it. You don't need it. Um, see how that goes. Something that happens in political work, if you're a new, if you're new to the scene, if you're new to campaigning, if you're new to getting involved, what's going to happen is the activists are going to love bomb you you're going to get friended on Facebook you're going to have people follow you on Twitter you're going to be added to to you know special groups and invited to do this that and the other you know they they're going to want you to go to fundraisers they're going to want to help you. they're going to want you to host a fundraiser you know because this is love bombing like in a narcissistic personal relationship love bombing is when the narcissist you know showers their uh Uh, subject with all kinds of um, praise and uh, affection, and then at some point, you know, that kind of cools off and goes away. Now, that that happens in all relationships, happens in a lot of social relationships, but it's especially pronounced in narcissistic abuse. So, let's just, let's, uh, let's leave it here. I'm going to write a little bit about this Uh, We'll talk about it a little bit more. I just wanted to plant the seed in your head. And maybe if you're somebody who is familiar with this, uh, with this vocabulary, uh, maybe start thinking about the ways in which political life um, presents the opportunities for dysfunctional narcissistic relationships to flourish. Let's think about it. Just consider it. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea. And the more I write about it, the more I see it in most of the relations that, uh, that I've had in political life and the political relations that, uh, that are occurring in social media 100% of the time. I mean, it's just it's just there. Uh, okay, I want to get everyone ready. Changing the subject big time. I want to get everybody ready for this fabulous interview that Rick Spizak has done with Florida International University professor Jerry Brown on psychedelic iconography in the weirdest places. In this case, in Christian iconography. If you go to YouTube or you go to Google and you search uh, FIU Professor Jerry Brown, you can find some uh, lectures of his. You can find his book. Uh, and he's, he's authored and co-authored quite a, quite a, a few really interesting things. But um, check check out, and I'm going to pull that up really quick here for you, uh, because I want you to be able to go find his book. But I wanted to make, I wanted to just say a few things about, uh, since we're going to be talking about Christian iconography, I wanted to, to say a few words, because I know a lot of our listeners, I know a lot of progressives are not like, I know a lot of us are either agnostic or atheist, and when you hear Christian iconography, you're tend to kind of shut down. And I understand that because I used to be that person. Like, I get it. I totally get it. Um, uh, Brought up Catholic, cultural Catholic, went to Catholic church, went to Catholic school uh, for a very short time. Didn't take. You don't, to appreciate what's talked about, what Jerry Brown is getting ready to talk about, you don't, This isn't a matter of devotion. This isn't a matter of worship. What he's doing is pointing out that there is a rich history, and we're finding more all the time, of a shamanistic tendency in uh, early Christianity. And when I say early Christianity, uh, like I got his book and, oh, that's where I can find it. Um, I got his book on Kindle last night. It's called The Psychedelic Gospels. This is co-authored with with his wife, Julie Brown. So Jerry Brown, PhD, and Julie Brown, MA, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. Um, The Psychedelic Gospels. The idea and you might have seen this. If you're an IKEA shopper and you go to IKEA for um holiday decorations, you might see the uh, Amanita mushroom everywhere. That's that little red, that's the red and with the white dots. That's that psychedelic mushroom that you see everywhere uh during the holidays. And it's part of Scandinavian uh mythology. Um turns out that iconography isn't just in Scandinavia, and it isn't just in Ikea, and it's not just in dorm rooms (laughs) at Reed College, it's all over the place in Christian iconography, and it's like miatas, you don't notice them until you notice them, you know, once you, once you start seeing them, you start seeing them everywhere, once you start seeing the mushrooms in Christian iconography, oh my god, they're everywhere, once you start seeing a miata on the road, oh my god, they're everywhere. You don't see it until you see it, and then when you see it, oh my gosh! You're like, how did I, how how did we get this far and never notice this stuff? Well, you know, I'll tell you, we didn't notice it, we didn't see it, because uh, there was no reason to. You know, uh, a lot of times these uh, images are somewhat obscured, or they're part of they're part of a um, or a, an aesthetic, or a, I'm looking for a word and I'm not finding it. They're part of a design that doesn't seem to be part of the narrative in the iconography. In other words, they're they're uh, you know like like in a band of um, what's called a meander, or they're they're uh, placed uh discreetly <laughs> they're discreetly placed sometimes in in Christian iconography and then other times they're just like there they're just like front and center now why might that be i mean cuz we don't think about we don't think about christianity as being much of a um a psychedelic uh religion right um, it's not like we don't think of Catholic priests as shamans. We don't think of Baptist ministers as uh um you know the the having any kind of truck with um ecstatic experience and unless unless you know with Baptists unless we're talking about that kind of ecstatic experience you know the um uh, all the extreme forms are speaking in tongues and, um, and that, that kind of thing falling down in, in ecstasy and you know maybe just maybe that sort of thing is a remnant of this knowledge and this experience uh, this revelation you might say that the people used to indulge or invoke through the use of plant medicines. And, uh, you know, I got to imagine, you know, as, a, as someone who is not naive when it comes to, uh, to uh, entheogens, I got to imagine that if you were like, let's say living in the 1400s and uh, you were amongst a group of people who were observing what we call holidays now and uh, partaking of certain, you know, ceremonies. And maybe one of those ceremonies was one where uh, a psilocybin mushroom was used in a tea form. Well, what's gonna happen in that case is you're going to have a handful of um, 15th century uh uh, religious people tripping their nuts off. That's what's going to happen right there. And uh, and what in my experience, a lot of times what happens with that is that you you get a sense of an experience of a first person perception of another consciousness, and that's pretty. That's pretty gobsmacking, even for, like, a college student, you know, like, these days, like, that does stop you in your tracks, and uh, I know a lot of people, once they have that first experience, things really change, you know, you really want to learn why that happened and what it's about and what it's teaching you, and I believe some of that is in the biography In uh, Jerry Brown's um, biographical history, uh, his first class, he taught a class in the 70s on um, psychedelic uh, iconography and culture after having experienced, uh, I think it was psilocybin, having, having tripped essentially for his first time, and then Put together a class to explore that subject matter, which is, um, by the way, you know, people who aren't in university culture, that is something that happens all the time. A professor who wants to learn about something will teach a class on it, you know, because that that gives you the discipline to do the research and create the lectures and do the curriculum and present it. You know, that's, that's a form of And a very legitimate form of getting things, uh, getting things done, getting things on paper. And I did have notes on this and now I know if I had them. Um, Imagine for a moment with the tale of the Garden of Eden and again for the agnostics and the atheists among us. We're talking about myth and we're talking about narratives. Don't take this as devotional. Don't take this as worship. That's not that's not my intent and, and and I don't want that to turn people off because I know that that turns people off. But you know, these myths are such a part of our culture. You know, they they get woven into into you know Hollywood movies they get woven into our lives in certain ways and so the tale of the fall you know the 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 whole Garden of Eden thing um you ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil what the hell does that mean it's always it, it's always been shown to be an apple. Well that doesn't even make any sense apples are great but they're not that good. Uh if what they were actually talking about was a an entheogen, a mushroom, or something that provided an experience uh, a psychedelic experience where people where 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 the other consciousness is revealed, then that's really, really interesting and it also i think gives us a lot of hope because it also points to the fact that you know those experiences are still available to us you know we don't have to buy the dogma we don't have to buy the ideology you know but we can't ignore the fact that these myths and this culture is we're soaking in it you know it is it is whether we like it or not we are surrounded by all different kinds of religious culture uh, whether it's Christian or um, Judaic or or or, or Muslim. It, it, it behooves us to just learn about all of this stuff, even if we're not uh, necessarily uh, consider ourselves to be religious. And I don't consider myself to be religious, but I took
0: a lot
1: of religion in college because I wanted to understand it. And also they required it in philosophy. Um, so This interview
0: is 25 minutes long. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Professor Jerry Brown.
2: A founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University. Professor, tell us a little bit about your academic career. So anthropologist for the short version and um, uh, have a doctorate from Cornell And I served as a founding professor of anthropology at FIU from 1972 until, believe it or not, 2014 when I retired.
3: Now, I know from uh, a little bit of research that you've been involved in in the research into psychedelics. Uh, They're therapeutic and their potential to help us understand
2: the mind and its capabilities. Okay, so how did I get into this is your first question. Well, uh, in 1973, a friend of mine from Miami invited me to attend the Rainbow Gathering, which was sort of an early Burning Man. It was a gathering of about 5,000 people high in the mountains of Colorado. And there I had my first LSD experience. And unlike the esteemed Dr. Albert Hoffman, whose uh, Bicycle Day uh, anniversary was just celebrated on the 19th a few days before our conversation. Um, he had he thought he was dying. I didn't think I was dying, but I had uh, a pretty terrifying experience that spun me into a Carlos Castaneda-like world. and It really shook up my framework and at one point I literally thought I was losing my mind. Um, Being an anthropologist, being a social scientist, uh, as I say, if you wanna know something about it, teach it. I designed and taught a course called Hallucinogens and Culture, which I taught at Florida International University from 1975 until I retired in 2014. Yeah, yes. And uh, the course was really an academic study of the major landmarks in the field of psychedelics and culture. Uh, Case studies, studies of psychonauts, studies of scientists, studies of witches and and wise women. And so that was the course that I I taught. Um, Just as a sidebar, in 1979, I had a powerful, synchronistic, psychedelic experience on magic mushrooms in Jamaica where they are legal. Ironically, marijuana was not legal there. Uh, That led me that I heard a divine voice saying that the nuclear power was evil and you have to destroy it. Uh, When I got back on the plane from Jamaica, I walked out of customs, picked up the Miami Herald, and the headline was Three Mile Island, 30 minutes from a meltdown. And after that incredible synchronicity, I've worked in the field of anti-nuclear research and renewable energy for for many decades. Uh, Fast forward to 2006, and my wife and co-author Julie and I are on an anniversary trip in Scotland and drawn to Roslyn Chapel, south of Edinburgh, by Dan Brown's uh, book, The Da Vinci Code, uh, we discovered a psychoactive Amanita muscaria mushroom sculpted into the forehead of one of the uh, figures, of the green man figures in Roslyn Chapel, which is a Christian church, a Catholic church. And this started us thinking, why is this here? Are there psychedelic images? And, and being able, you know, art historians, theologians, tour guides, didn't recognize this for 500 years that chapel was sitting there because they didn't have the interdisciplinary background of studying the cultural context of mushrooms, identifying mushrooms, understanding their chemical compositions, knowing a little bit about the folklore. And we started saying, well, could this be in other churches? How far back does this go? Could this go back to the origins of Christianity? And we had to stop and realize, as Carl Sagan, the astrophysicist said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So if we're gonna look at anything as controversial as this, we better have compelling, clear evidence. And after several years, we realized, look, if we don't go out and research this, given what we know, we're gonna regret this the rest of our lives. So in 2012, we undertook a six-month trip throughout Europe and the Middle East, uh, identifying, photographing, looking for psychoactive mushroom images, psilocybin-containing an amanita, in churches and cathedrals. And that resulted in our book, where we documented our findings, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity, which was published in 2016.
3: Early research in the 60s into the potential for psychedelic substances, was in large part uh, a victim of the famous uh, war on drugs, uh, which ultimately was a war on a lot of other things, mostly poor people and people of color. And while it did drive a lot of research underground, there were those who found from their own researches that there was an interesting link between altered states of consciousness and what we might call the mystical experience. What have you seen in your research?
2: Well, um, I think there's two parts to your question. Uh, The first part is, let's talk about the outlawing. And uh, Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's uh, two main advisors, admitted shortly before his death Uh, related to the passing of the 1970 Controlled Substance Act, which classified all of the most known psychedelics as Schedule I, illegal, uh, not to be used on human subjects, no redeeming factors. And he said, look, we knew that these drugs were not harmful. We had two problems. We had a civil rights movement. We had an anti-war movement. You couldn't make it illegal to be black. And you certainly couldn't make it illegal to protest. But we knew by banning these substances, we could arrest, harass, persecute many of the leaders of these movements or use these laws as a pretext uh, for that. And this led to the, the horrible effects of the drug war, which we are seeing the, you know, kind of winding down now as marijuana is getting legalized. For medical and recreational use, we're seeing that finally unwinding. The second point is really a fascinating one about the relationship between science and mysticism, which has always been seen as the great divide. In 1962, there was a piece of research conducted by Walter Pankey, a student of Leary's before Leary got kicked out of Harvard and the Psilocybin Research Project. And what he did was he took two groups of Protestant divinity students and put them in a church, uh, actually Marsh Chapel, on Friday, Good Friday. It's also called the Good Friday Experiment, gave one group, about 10 of them, uh, psilocybin, and the other group a placebo, niacin, B12, which would give you a rush. Nine out of the 10 people Who received the psilocybin had a full-blown mystical or religious experience, and only one of the control group did. This was the first double-blind controlled study that showed that proved what many of us in the psychedelic movement had been saying that psychedelics can induce a mystical experience. This research was replicated, was followed up 25 years later. And seven of those nine said that this was the most or one of the most significant experiences in their lives. And then in 2004 or 5, at Johns Hopkins uh, Medical School, Roland Griffiths, who is the father or the grandfather of the psychedelic renaissance, a very highly respected drug researcher with 300 peer-reviewed papers before he turned his attention to psychedelics, replicated this study using modern methodology and proved also using creating the first mystical experience scale where they could measure for things like unity, positive mood, transcendence of time and space, ineffability. This was an indescribable, but couldn't put it completely in words, that we could now predictably induce a mystical experience Johns Hopkins, which has now gotten a $17 million grant to create the first center for a university center for psychedelic research in the United States, has done many first studies uh, in psychedelics, including groundbreaking work with tobacco addiction, with treatment-resistant depression, and with uh, reducing or ending uh, end-of-life anxiety, especially among cancer patients. And one of the most compelling findings from their research, well, several of them are, that the stronger the dose of psilocybin, the more powerful the mystical experience. And people are finding that this will have lasting positive effects six months, a year, or more after they are in their session. Now, I want to stress that this is done in a carefully screened Preparation and supervised clinical setting, so it's it's controlled. And the the key finding here is that the success of the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is directly related to the intensity of the mystical experience. So now we have the surprising finding of white coated laboratory clinicians creating a religious mystical experience as a key to successfully helping with smoking cessation, alcohol use reduction, cancer-related depression, and treatment-resistant depression. This is why we're really moving towards a new paradigm in terms of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy.
3: Dr. Brown, could you talk a little bit about the early years of LSD research before the onerous cultural baggage uh, was dropped on it and really, in large part, uh, terminated uh, large-scale official research?
2: Well, this goes all the way back uh, to Dr. Stanislav Grof, a psychiatrist who, in the 1950s, received from Albert Hoffman at Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland, uh, one of the first um, synthesized LSD uh, products uh, because Hoffman and Sandoz Labs wanted psychiatrists to see what the possibility of this for treating mentally ill patients was. Uh, Basically, Groff had a cosmic consciousness experience In his first LSD trip, and he realized coming out of that experience that it it overturned his whole uh, faith in Freudian uh, psychotherapy, which he felt was too slow, too unproductive, and while it was a brilliant intellectual theory, was not yielding results. And he saw psychedelics as the royal road to the unconscious uh he had great he mapped the unconscious the levels of the unconscious he described psychedelics are to the un, are to the to the brain to the mind what the microscope is to biology and what the telescope is to astronomy uh stanislav groff who um has written and and brilliantly for decades on this field um and has guided more LSD experiences than any living human being, over 3,000, came to this conclusion in his work. And I quote, I see consciousness and the human psyche as expressions and reflections of a cosmic intelligence that permeates the entire universe and all of existence. We're not simply biological uh, animals with a biological computer in our skulls. We are fields of consciousness without limits. So Groff and others have mapped this. When it comes to mapping, the real interesting work is literally being done with brain mapping by uh, Dr. Robin Carhart Harris at Imperial College in London. And you might remember those old Nancy Reagan ads, you know, uh, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Well, with Carhartt's work, you can see literally, this is your brain and this is your brain on LSD. With graphic 3D color imaging and you see the entire, so many, you talk about brain capacity, so many more areas of the brain lighting up under an LSD experience that he's done with MRI magnetic resonance imaging. So we can now see this neurologically. The way this seems to work and what um, Matt Johnson and others at Johns Hopkins have, have come to conclude is that why this is working is because we have, like your computer has a software, a default mode, a basic operational system. What they're calling normal consciousness is the default mode network of the brain. What psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, MDMA, do is that they destabilize the normal brain network. Just think like if you drive to work every every day, the same route and you take it and it comes in grain and it's now second nature for you. But now that route is blocked one day. And now you have to explore other pathways to get to work. This is what happens. The normal functioning of the brain is disrupted, and a resetting of the brain happens. That allows you to solve problems in different ways, to maybe see past trauma objectively and move beyond it, it, and to become artistically creative. So it certainly creates a new paradigm for brain research and literally uh, reorients the way we can think and does untap uh, human potential that we don't regularly access during normal states of consciousness.
3: This uh, research into the mystic states of consciousness is actually fairly well documented in meditative context uh, in Hindu and Tibetan religious books and thoroughly report on different states of consciousness, how one might achieve them. And describes different types of perception as part of the mystical experience.
2: Could you could you speak to that? Well, first of all, that you go back to the Hindu literature. Uh, one of the chapters in our book is called "O Immortal Soma," and one of the case studies I taught on and we write about in our book, "The Psychedelic Gospels," is about this enigmatic plant juice god described in the Hindu. Rig Veda, the oldest of the Hindu works composed written down in Sanskrit about 3,500 years ago and translated into the English, French, and German about 200 years ago. And one of the most famous verses in it says we have drunk Soma and become immortal. We have attained the light the God's discovered. Now, what may foemen's malice do to harm us? What Oh, immortal, mortal man's deception. So this is a unity state of consciousness that the ancient Hindus practiced and was at the foundation, many believe, of even yoga and meditative practices of trying to recapture that state talked about in the ancient Rig Veda. Uh, While we may describe unity experiences generically, as being, you know, feeling a unity with everything, a great mood, a transcendence of time and space, undescribable. I think that uh, from reading in Gene Houston's the varieties of psychedelic experience, that people's actual experience of that um, mystical unity experience varies according to who they are. Uh, Groff had an epic one In um, his first LSD experience, my unity experience that I had in Jamaica uh, took me into a a kind of divinely inspired sense of purpose to combat nuclear energy and to work for renewable energy. My wife, Julie's mystical experience, which took place at a gospel music concert in Philadelphia, and she took a uh, a, uh, psychedelic product and was gone for Two days, uh, she was shot into space, and we describe this uh, in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, and it is also available on our website, uh, psychedelicgospels.com, psychedelicgospels.com, that she saw herself blasted out into the stars, and as she slowed down, she saw that every star had a face, and she seemed to recognize them and eventually joined hands with everyone in the entire world. And that gave her a sense of unity and purpose towards her work in psychotherapy that literally transformed her life. So I, what I would say is that people, depending on who they are, where they are in their lives, maybe what their soul's code or destiny is, uh, will have different uh, cosmic consciousness or unity experiences.
3: Professor Brown, let me ask you this. Uh, You've certainly spent lots of time in a very, very interesting field, and you've retired from formally teaching. Um, Do you you see yourself
2: retiring, or do you see yourself continuing your research? (laughs) Um, Retired from FIU, um, not retired from doing our research, writing, and education work on psychedelics, Uh, because to our amazement, being children of the 60s, And um, having our first psychedelic experience, you know, outside of a legal framework without any guides very much on our own. um, I am literally amazed at the extent, depth and robustness of the psychedelic renaissance that's seen it to be scientifically validated to the point that the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. has given breakthrough therapy classification to MDMA for helping vets who are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, and to treatment-resistant um, depression, of which over 100 million people suffer worldwide. So one day, in the not-too-distant future, we could see FDA-approved psychedelic-assisted um, psych- um, therapy centers, you know, in a neighborhood near you. So that is an incredibly promising avenue. The efforts to decriminalize or legalize psychedelics, which has already been accomplished in Denver and Santa Cruz and Oakland, California, and have now moved to statewide initiatives uh, to be on the ballot in California for legalization and in Oregon for medically approved uh, psilocybin. So I think this is incredibly Promising. The research that's going on scientifically to demonstrate that look, these psychedelics, which we we banned and considered taboo and horrible for so many years, can really help with opioid addiction, Uh, smoking, stopping smoking, getting people off of alcohol, um, reducing end of life anxiety, uh, overcoming depression. So these are all multiple forefronts that are underway uh, in the psychedelic renaissance. And I think they're all worthwhile pursuing.
3: Just to share a brief anecdote. Uh, When I was in college, uh, a professor of psychology offered to show a film that he set up as completely objective, a fair and even-handed scientific analysis of the phenomenon of drug abuse. And it turned out it was the same film I'd seen in 10th grade. So I asked him afterwards, I said, you know, it's one thing to show a film like that, a silly, uh, pointless exercise in fear-mongering, but it's a whole other thing to preface it by saying this is a scientific piece. I offered to provide uh, alternative perspectives for the people like uh, Dr. Lilly, Dr. Huxley, Ralph Metzner, and uh, other researchers into mental states, and he essentially uh, told me that uh, I should come back and meet him at the end of the day. And when I came back to talk to him about my presentation, he introduced me to two officers, the local constable, and suggested that he would given them my name, phone number, and address, and they'd be dropping by to see me. So I said lamentably that I had thought that in the Hallett Halls of Academia one could hear both sides of a story, but I realized now that you had another lesson to teach me instead. And uh, I thanked him and walked away, and I promised myself that I would never come back to that institution again until I was invited to lecture. And sure enough, within a year, I was. I'm so glad you could join us, and I have to say I'm so impressed and pleased that you've been able to conduct your research and really make some progress. Thanks so much for joining us, sir.
2: It's my pleasure, and I, I'm delighted to learn that you know we've come a long way since your experiences and my early experiences For anyone who wants to follow our work, our book is The Psychedelic Gospels on Amazon. Uh, You can visit our website, psychedelicgospels.com, and our Facebook page, Psychedelic Gospels, has uh, most of our recent posts and the recent research findings. Thank you so much, Richard.
3: And thank you, sir, for spending some time with us. We hope to talk to you again soon. Anytime. It's a pleasure.
1: And we're back, I hope. Uh, Sorry for the technical difficulties. My, I think my motherboard fried right in the middle of the show. But we have Janine Moloff on the line, I hope. Janine? Yes, you do, Brooke. I'm
0: sorry to hear about your (gasps) motherboard. Uh, I I will say a prayer. Uh, Anyway, I'm going to get straight to it. The the title is How Our Government Has Denied Us the True Facts and Now Medicines That Could Save Lives during this COVID pandemic. And this is part of our hashtag not dying for Wall Street series. During this COVID crisis, we have witnessed a level of political incompetence that reaches criminal levels. The GOP of Trump has essentially cut most of us off from effective medical diagnosis, prevention through PPE, and any treatment while the Democrats wring their collective hands and cry foul that do nothing to stop the criminal in the Oval Office. In the past few weeks, We've discussed the created, what I call the created shortage of PPE, and how it's been exacerbated by the Feds blockading any access through FEMA and the FBI, and the lack of any sort of systemic plan in terms of dealing with this COVID pandemic. We've witnessed how Jared Kushner and other businessmen populate a shadow COVID task force, though none of them have any expertise in medicine, bioscience epidemiology or pandemic response. Now we see that there's a medicine that quite possibly could prevent many COVID deaths, which is not presently allowed in the United States. The stated reason, it was developed by Cuba. The theoretical reason, in my opinion, it would stand in the way perhaps of US pharma products, profits, I'm sorry. So let's talk about that drug. It's called Alpha-2B recombinant interferon and the bioscience big ph- biopharma giant that Americans have been kept in the dark about, namely Cuba. The big question is, why the censorship? So first, the political slant of the story concerning alpha-2b recombinant interferon, a drug that could stop COVID mortality, for so the worst of it. And this was an article written by Diana Block called, What Cuba Has to Teach in Pandemic Times and Beyond. And This woman visited the Cuban Institute for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology, and she was impressed by all the scientific advances, including, and this is a quote, the development of interferons to successfully fight viral diseases such as Dengue and Ebola, end quote. Now, what they didn't know is that in another seven months, Cuba's what she calls unique alpha-2b recombinant interferon would become one of the major first-line antiviral drugs used in China and many other countries around the world to fight COVID-19. Now Cuba developed this viral interferon and it's even been recognized in a few U.S. publications such as Newsweek and that was I believe in March. Now these scientific and medical advances that are, breaking, that are breaking through, they're coming from Cuba, they have to break through the U.S. corporate disinformation blockade, which routinely suppresses or distorts any information we are able to get about Cuban, the Cuban bioscience industry, which apparently is one of the best in the world. Now, uh, in a recent webinar, uh, the Cuban ambassador to the United States, Jose Ramon Cabanas, and several other medical experts explained that even though COVID-19, even if this interferon isn't a cure for COVID-19, the initial reports are very promising and that used in combination with other drugs, it, it's quite effective. Now, at this point, over 45 countries around the world have actually asked Cuba for help not only with this drug, but also medical expertise. But at this point, this drug is not available in the U.S. Now, U.S. and Canadian organizers um, have begun to call for the incorporation of alpha-2b recombinant interferon in the U.S. and Canadian clinical trials, and they've asked the U.S. FDA to approve it for use in the U.S., but that hasn't materialized at all. We go through this, and what we see politically is that historically the U.S. government has defamed Cuba over and over again, but they have really included in that is they're defaming Cuba's medical solidarity. Cuba has, you can call it socialized medicine, all right? They develop their own drugs, their own bioscience, and they use it widely for their own population. That's how they're able to afford it. Um, they don't allow corporate to interfere, and it's taxpayer supported. And Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Peres tweeted um, as a response to the latest allegations. And this was Tillisher English. Quote: Unfortunately, while COVID-19 threatens humanity, the U.S. government is hindering the combat of the epidemic by attacking countries that practice solidarity and international cooperation instead of ending the illegal system of unilateral coercive measures such as the blockade versus Cuba. Now on March 31st there was a plane of medical supplies from China and that included mass diagnostic kits and ventilators that was heading to Cuba. They were not allowed to land in Cuba and that was our government stopping them. And that was under the auspices of the 1996 Burton Act and that is a law that escalated our blockade actually that had been in place since 1960 Um, and so we go through this and, and what we find is a continual barrage of what the writer calls quote neoliberal coercive economic measures and Once again, this according to this writer would be no way to respond, quote, to the economic and social disparities that even without a pandemic kill millions of people every year, including women, children, and elders. Now, the US blockade of Cuba is, according to this writer, merciless during this pandemic, and I agree. Now, what Cuban doctors are doing, unlike in Italy and the USA, they're not letting people die. Cuba has the world's highest ratio of physicians. Uh, Basically, they have 28,000 medical students that are under the supervision of professors. And their doctors and medical students go door to door around the country to check, see if anyone has respiratory symptoms. If they do, the person is immediately sent to a family doctor and, if need be, to a local hospital for immediate testing. Now, Susanna Hurlick is a Canadian who's lived in Cuba for 30 years, and she explained the logic behind Cuba's approach to COVID-19, and it was, quote, to educate and mobilize the people around principles of discipline, cooperation, and solidarity, and keep them constantly informed so they can be active and responsible participants in the fight against coronavirus, end quote. Um, one, another thing is they also have the Latin School in, in Cuba, the Latin School American School of Medicine, and they provide scholarships to people in the U.S., but these people, that, want to work and research have to commit to using their MD degrees to work in underserved communities. Uh, again, this is something that is unheard of here. Now, even Bernie recently, when he was still campaigning, uh, brought up how Cuban medicine is handling this far better than we are, and he was demonized for mentioning the successful track record of Cuban medicine on 60 Minutes. and the attacks didn't just come from republicans but also from many sectors of the democratic party and they accused him of quote praising an authoritarian regime end quote which is absolutely ludicrous this is about an illness so basically we have this political movement that and and this blockade that is preventing our country from getting access to what looks like one of the most promising medicines now Tom O'Connor wrote in Newsweek in March 24th, quote, Cuba uses wonder drug to fight coronavirus around the world despite US sanctions. And they've really mobilized their their, one, their medical corps. Once again, it's interferon alpha 2B recombinant, you can call it however. It basically what's happened is Cuban medical brigades have been helping out in China. They've also deployed to dozens of nations. And this antiviral drug is really, you know, helping quite a bit. Cuba has first used advanced interferon techniques. Uh, initially, they did this to treat dengue fever in the 80s, and then later they gained some success using interferons to combat HIV, human papilloma virus, hepatitis C, hepatitis C, and many others. This drug can save lives, cases of COVID in the later stages that cause death. All right and this was actually Cuban biotech expert Luis Herrera Martinez was quoted as saying quote the use of interferon alpha 2b recombinant prevents aggravation and complications in patients reaching that stage that ultimately can result in death and that's that stage where basically your lungs just stop working Um, and she called this a real wonder drug now Uh, There was some more. 15 countries have contacted Cuba to request the drug. And even though it has not been approved to treat COVID-19, it has been effective against other viruses that are similar to it. It's also been selected with 30 other drugs to treat COVID-19 by China's National Health Commission. The World Health Organization is going to be studying interferon beta along with three other drugs. Cuba's anti-pandemic workflow is hindered by U.S. sanctions and this is something that we should be uh, ashamed of but it happens. Our State Department under Mike Pompeo um, has attacked Cuba even though he's mentioned helping other sanctioned nations but not Cuba. Again viruses don't discriminate. It doesn't matter what Mr. Pompeo says about other issues. This is a highly transmissible disease that is often lethal, and we really need to, you know, help each other out. So now, a uh, really damning fact. As of March 24th, when this Newsweek article was written, the fact was this: Cuba has eleven, approximately 11.5 million people, and as of this writing on March 24th, 40 COVID cases and one COVID death. Not kidding during which there was a massive testing expert a nation of 11.5 million people as of march 24th only had 40 coded cases and only one death but they had massive testing everybody and that is what we need to do you know this is uh, it's so obvious it's ridiculous ironically the usa which is considered one of the wealthiest nations in the world Is destined to become the most COVID afflicted. In fact, at this point right now, as of May 1st, there have been over 61,000 COVID deaths. And that's probably an undercount due to the lack of mass testing. This is something that we cannot allow to continue. So we're looking at this and we're going, all right, what is really so special about this drug? And what it really is. And this is an article written by Helen Yef in uh, Counterpunch Cuba's contribution to combating COVID-19. This drug has been produced um, in China since '03 through a Cuban-Chinese joint venture, and basically, what it does, it is. well, first of all, Interfere it, it deals with interference Interferons are what are they what do they do? Well, they're signaling proteins, and what they do is they produce These signaling proteins that produce that are produced and released by cells quote in response to infections Which alert nearby said cells to heighten their antiviral defenses? okay, so the interference allow your body's natural defenses to actually work and this is something that is proven to be very, very effective. Um, and it's not new. President Jimmy Carter helped bring us interferons, uh, and, and this was, you know, back what in, like, 1980. Um, one of the reasons that I think, in my opinion, the U.S. has a problem with Cuban medicine is that when they deal with interferon, they like other nations like the Sin share the breakthrough, and they don't necessarily patent the procedure. The Cubans have been able to produce large quantities of interferon, and the, again, it's working. We have an epidemic here in the U.S. because again, nothing is happening. Interferon shown great promise to alleviate also multiple deadly conditions, and as I said before, brain fever. Advertised DNC, shingles, HIV, AIDS, and it's been used to treat various carcinomas. You know, again, Anna Helen Yeff is a lecturer in economic social history at the University of Glasgow. So, why the continual demonization of Cuba and this this potential wonder drug, and especially, why haven't we found out more about its medical biotech sector? You know. Even Yale University spoke of the gem that is Cuba's biotech and biopharma industry, and many Americans felt little to nothing about it. Yale Global Online, um, they were talking about it. And basically, the biotech industry in Cuba has really grown since the mid-'80s. They developed the meningitis B vaccine back in the mid-'80s, and it's one of the most effective vaccines, and they export to more than 30 countries. Uh You know once again, Cuba is really according of them employees they're we're going to see anti cancer therapies and now this article is written out four, and they were saying to the European market by two thousand and eight all right the rest of the world is benefiting from Cuban medicine except the United States. Their biomedical industry is a giant um, and again. Even though it only has 11 million people and is cash-trapped, it actually has 52 scientific research instit- institutes in the capital, and they have over 12,000 scientists on the island. Their health indicators are as good as ours. Infant mortality is 6.4% per 1,000, and life expectancy is 75 years. And once again this is something because they decided that they were going to have true public medicine. And this is something we don't have here. So, again, we're looking at this, and you can say, well, that's socialized medicine. Well, yes, it is, and it's working. So how did Cuba become a bio- what they called a biopharma juggernaut? Again, this interferon medicine can save a lot of lives. And this was... Um, written by Andres Cardenas-O'Farrell, who's a Cuban economist and associate researcher with the Academic Industry Research Network. And again, their biopharm industry is quite sophisticated. They hold about 1,200 international patents. They sell medicine and equipment to more than 50 countries. The industry is pub- totally publicly funded and managed. But it's also one of the reasons And they have a very efficient public health care system because it helps them. They develop the drugs and provide it to anybody. They're not saddled with middlemen jacking up the price. Again, their biopharma sector has financed many programs, and they do it to benefit the people. Their biopharma achievements have earned international scientific respect. They've developed even, it looks like, a vaccine for lung cancer. And that one actually did earn the U.S. drug regulators permission to carry out clinical trials on America's American soil, and it was developed by the Center for Molecular Immunology. They specialize in antibodies, cancer medicines, and other areas. So. Once again, why have we not heard about all this? What, what is the news blackout? And that's one of the most damning issues in terms of this entire COVID crisis, that the information we need, we've received disinformation, we've been told lies, and we have been in a news blackout regarding the information we truly need to know. Um, Cuba's public health system prioritizes it, prevention, I'll say it again, Cuba's public health system prioritizes prevention, while the U.S. prioritizes detection and expensive and often ineffective treatments, in my opinion. And once again, this is something that we have to look at and demand far better. Right now, our doctors are being gagged. As we reported throughout this series, many doctors and nurses have complained that they are being threatened with termination if they tell the truth about what's really going on. And now they also have in Cuba the Centro Nacional de Investigación Investigation Science, um, and CNIC, they employ all sorts of scientists, and they are a driving force in this Quest. One of the things they say is only those with the talent and the humanitarian drive need apply. Those who go into medicine to become wealthy, they say, go elsewhere. Some of the most prestigious worldwide institutions have hosted Cuban researchers: um, Pasteur Institute, Harvard University, Heidelberg University, Zurich University. Have all hosted Cuban researchers, and this is during and even after formative years of the CNIC. The Cuban biotech industry is cutting edge, and yet here in the U.S. we don't hear anything about it. It's a multidisciplinary, the CNIC is a multidisciplinary institution, and that became a a hub for chemical and biological experimental research, which is why we are finding out about these medicines, these medicines that can save lives. Cuban pharma and vaccine advances, unknown to the U.S. public, besides the lung cancer and HIV vaccines. Cuba has also pr- produced, I'm going to try and pronounce this, ppg pullic which is a pharmaceutical, quote, derived from sugarcane that reduces morbidity and mortality from arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Cuban scientists also developed a biomedicine called pepper p which treats foot problems in diabetics so they don't have to have them amputated. The Cuban sector also developed VA Mengoc which is basically the first commercial, commercially available vaccine against uh, Serogroup B meningococcus. Um, Once again, and often the Novartis, which is a Swiss drug maker, has been credited with developing the first vaccine to find meningitis B. Not true. Cuba had the drug 24 years earlier. This is something that we have to look at. Again, why, did we not, why were we not told about interferon? It's, been being, it's being used throughout this epidemic, and yet we're only first finding out about it after 61,000 people in the U.S. have already died. This is criminal. And what do we get from the administration of Donald Trump and the GOP of Trump? Let's review it. Trump and the GOP of Trump, they have no plan for mass testing. They, he, he hates masks. He wants to liberate the states from quarantine or stay-at-home orders. He wants to open up non-essential businesses, and he doesn't—he has no opinion about social distancing, school closing, or large gatherings. This is criminal abdication of duty. Once again, we already have lost 61,000 people, and we're only first finding out about interferon, which those 61,000 people might still be alive today. And here's the conclusion: amidst this global pandemic. The U.S. administration of Donald Trump has demonstrated a level of criminal incompetence that rivals neurofiddling while Rome was burning. We have no organized plan for COVID testing, no dependable supply chain for medicines, ventilators, and critical PPE. Our food chain is crumbling before our eyes due to corporate greed as multiple companies demand workers continue to labor in close quarters, which is, can be fatal during this pandemic, while denying them PPE. Now we have the possibility of a drug, namely Alpha-2B recombinant interferon, that has shown promise in treating the deadliest aspects of COVID by preventing the complications that result in death. This administration will not allow this drug in the U.S. market. This blockade coincides with the overall sanctions the U.S. has pushed against Cuba. Now we have a blockade of a promising drug, but probably one that Trump and his buddies can't co-opt for a huge profit. So we have the feds not only blockading critical PPE, but also drugs that could save many lives at a time when we've lost over 61,000 people to COVID in the U.S. alone. Given our corrupt governance, we can expect that if and when this drug is made available, it will be limited to the very rich. For weeks now, we've been bombarded by vapid commercials claiming we are all in this together with equally valid commentary from multiple celebs and professional athletes, but that has never been the case. COVID for the rich is not the same COVID that the rest of us suffer through. While most of us cannot obtain COVID testing, much less any effective treatment. And this includes doctors and nurses who have fallen and died due to COVID while trying to treat everyone else. Wealthy celebrities, members of the Trump administration and the U S Congress have full access through concierge medicine. So, no, we're not all in this together. That much is really clear. In fact, the Trump administration and the corporate world have made one thing truly, perfectly clear. American workers can either report back to work and risk dying from COVID, dying by starvation. It seems that the COVID-19 crisis is the convenient political contrivance that the GOP of Trump was waiting for, a certain method of resignation of what the Nazis of the third right termed useless eaters and again maybe we are all in this together with one exception the wealthy are the predators and we're the ones on the menu that's my report wow what i wow what i found throughout this was just disgusting
1: well and you know this this reminds me of michael moore's movie sicko where Mm -hmm. he went to cuba and he had the 9/11 volunteers; the yep. people had gotten sick from Ground Zero, and went to Cuba to obtain medical care because they hadn't been able to get right. medical care here. And right. Michael Moore was was the subject of uh, diplomatic cables that were, you know, looking at him for subversion. So you know, right. it, 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 it was there was just all kinds of fallout from it that was absolutely ridiculous there was a um let me find it there was a uh um an investigation a treasury department probe uh often a process right. of foreign assets control actually went after him and and among other things you know there was like john stossel went after him and there was just like a, a, a whole bunch of uh well, a, a, but the, but it's this, this is all part how much this is
0: all part of the censorship because if the American yes. public found out the truth of how much they don't know, how much they have been cheated out of, neither party would ever have a chance again. This this is right. about the fact that we are expected to work ourselves to death, and th- and it's also one of the reasons why bigotry has raised its ugly head again because the money, the, the power and money uh, powers to be. They have to have a way to divide us, and bigotry supplies that. It just does, well, because then we don't fight for a good deal for the rest of all of us.
1: Right, right. And we're, we're under the impression that only the very rich can access uh, uh, medicines and treatments, and that only, you know, first world, you know, very – that this That's kind of research – can only yeah. happen in these pharmaceutical companies that are charging you through the nose, and here's right. here's this little tiny island nation that has social you know, with it's unbelievable I mean in one way, it gives me so much more our right. ability to actually you know do good things and do good medicine. And help people Mm -hmm. that there is a model for that to be done, and it also helps us identify the problem. And the the problem here is 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 the capitalistic model. You know that that the only kinds of drugs that are allowed to be developed are the ones that make money. The problem is that it's unbridled capitalism.
0: You know, no theory, no matter how good it may be, deserves a one-size-fits-all application. And the fact is, unbridled capitalism, no, no sufficient uh, regulation. This is a box guarding the hen house. And, you know, the fact is that there is absolutely no good excuse why an inhaler for asthma that costs $200 a year costs $2 there. All right. Amen. No, none at all. All right, especially when a lot of these medicines that we have here in the United States were actually researched on the tax dollar by the National Institute of Health. We pay for it and we're getting nothing for it, but there's no accountability, no transparency, and there will be more. I am I am Absolutely. not done with this yet.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank so. you so much. What a timely, amazing report. I so much appreciate it. And and for we're heading into I think like Looks like sixty seconds left. I apologize, (laughs) everybody, for the technical difficulties. It does look like my motherboard fried on my laptop, and I hope we kept everyone with us to hear the interview with uh, Jerry Brown. I will be editing uh, tonight's show and then re-uploading it so that the podcast doesn't include a little bit of dead space. Janine, thank you so much, and we'll talk again next week. Um, We will. uh, And take care. Everybody take care. care. Everybody uh, socially distance. Ignore Donald Trump. Do not drink bleach. (laughs) And (laughs) stay healthy. And we will talk to you guys and everyone next week. All righty. Bye-bye.